right. Is that better? Yeah, sorry about that. So my name is Matt Williams, and um, I'm glad to be here today. I'm really grateful for Ricky extending an invitation uh, to me to come back. The last time I spoke here, I was on staff, and I was just doing a short testimony for like two minutes, and I was sick for a week thinking about having to stand in front of all these people. So that was the last time I was on this stage. I was a summer staffer in 88 and 89, and um, it was a life-changing event for me. I uh, was 19 when I came here. I had never lived with other Christian guys, been around other Christian guys, and so it was a unique experience to live in a room. And In fact, Carrie was singing. I was just thinking about it. I lived with her dad. He was on staff here. And um, he was in charge of me some, told me what to do, and kept me on the straight and narrow. He was a great staff person, but he could not sing like that, not even close. And so um, I, I think that it was such a pivotal time for me, and being around um, other Christian guys and then having the influence of Kim Johnson and Hal Norton um, here was super helpful for me. And I went, I was an unknown entity. I just grew up in Horry County. I grew up here. And so my dad said, hey, you should look for a job at Garden City Chapel. I work construction. So after, during my freshman year at Clemson, I um, applied here. They made me go through like five or six interviews because they were like, this kid, his future is uncertain. We need to check on this. So they did a lot of research on me and I finally got my way in. So I worked here after my uh, freshman year and after my sophomore year. And um, I mean, Hal Norton was super helpful to me. We would walk on the beach, and we would talk, and I would explain things that I was thinking about, and he would say, that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. And then he would, he would deconstruct what I was thinking and help me think a better way, a more biblical way, and apply the scriptures to it. And um, I learned a ton from him and from the folks here. And so when I came back, I wasn't expecting to be so flooded with memories and nostalgia. But when I got up here, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is a lot happened here for me. Um, Hal Norton ultimately uh, married me and in 1990, and so 10 minutes before the wedding, he's not there. So seven minutes before the wedding, he walks in the door. I was like, hey, man, where you been? He goes, Kmart? I was like, what are you doing at Kmart? He goes, walking around looking. He goes, I don't have anything to do here. He goes, so now I'm here. Let's go. Let's get started. I was like, I've been about to throw up. Because I'm giving my life away here. He goes, look, this is the best decision you've ever made. You don't need to be sweating that part. And he goes, and I know what I'm doing. And so he led us through the service. But, yes, yeah, seven minutes before he walks in the door because he's been at Kmart killing time. That's what he's doing. He taught me big things about life. And he taught me little things. One of my jobs was to wait at that door when he came over before he would preach and open that door for him. And so when I opened that door for him, he would pull back his coat and look down and touch right here around his belt. And I'd be like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm checking to make sure my zipper's up. He goes, that's the last thing you got to check on every time before you speak. And I was like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. So now I've been preaching for 28 years at our church in Greenville. And every day before I get up, I touch right below my belt, make sure I'm good. In fact, our AV team, they think they're funny. So during the prayer, if the host is praying while I'm coming up, they'll, I'll slide my finger right there under my belt. And they took a picture of it and they posted it. They post that online. It was good. It's a good moment for me. So well, I'm glad to be together. We have, um, I have five children, um, three of which are married. We have three grandchildren and two on the way. I was probably not supposed to tell you about the two on the way, so don't tell anybody. 
So our family is large and growing, and we left Clemson and went to Dallas for seminary for a few years and then came back to Greenville and where my wife's from and planted a church there. And we've been there for 28 years, and that's just my life. That's what we've been doing this whole time. So I'm glad to be here. Turn to John chapter 12. Let's study the scriptures for a minute. John chapter 12. We'll look verses 1 through 19. It's two separate stories, but they're linked together. And it has something to say for those of us in the Western culture, in, in American society, especially the American society where we have grafted Christianity and America together. Where sometimes, particularly in a Southern culture, you can't tell where Christianity starts and Southern American culture begins. Those things have been too tightly wedded. And so we have to be careful with that. And so we want to receive Jesus as he's offering himself because if we try to receive him on our terms, we might not be receiving him at all. And so we are not the first people to struggle with that. People have always struggled with that, no matter what the culture, no matter what the season. So in John chapter 12, here's where we are. We are a week away from Jesus being killed. We have a week to go, and then he'll be killed. There is a dinner honoring Jesus at a house a couple miles from Jerusalem, and it's three siblings throwing the dinner. And And if you grew up in church, and if you've heard some of this, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they are siblings, two sisters and a brother. Previous to this moment, there was a time when Lazarus was sick. They sent for Jesus. Hey, can you come heal him before he dies? Jesus doesn't make it back on time. And then he's dead and everybody's mourning and grieving and Jesus grieves with them. And then Jesus raises him from the dead. This is a small community. This is a big story. Everybody knows about it. Jesus is becoming famous because of this story, among other things. Some of that's going well. Some of that's not going well. Lazarus, if you can imagine someone who was dead and now is alive, that's made him famous. The two sisters are now well known. So this is a big event, a big party. Lazarus and Jesus are going to be there, two famous people. And so here's the thing. If you are not a Christian and all this is, you know, you're like, I don't know. I don't believe any of this. I just got brought here today for whatever reason here's what i would just tell you try not to sweat it too much if you're interested i would encourage you to just study the resurrection of jesus you could start there you're like i don't know that i believe because you go give me a christianity without miracles it just doesn't exist so i'll I'll admit to you you're going to have to get through that part so the miracle to start with all the others the red sea parting and Lazarus being raised from the dead, none of that's really that big a deal if you can get through Jesus' resurrection. So if you can get through that one, put that one to the test, then all the others will make more sense on the back side of that. So I'm just saying, I know in a crowd this large, there are going to be people, you don't want to say it because, right, it's not appropriate to say in church, but you don't believe or you have real questions or you're skeptical about this. And I would say, just endure the next few minutes. And then on your own, spend some time looking at the resurrection of Jesus. It's quite challenging to think about and super interesting. So, famous people, Jesus and Lazarus, have come back. And so, Josh Turner, who you may know, country music star, lives in, or is from Hannah, South Carolina. When you, I'll drive by there today, it'll say, home of Josh Turner, Hannah, South Carolina. So you can imagine, the first time he got famous, his sister goes to our church in Greenville, so that's how I have the slightest connection there. But you can imagine, as soon as he got famous... When he came back home, how big a deal that would be in their small town. So that's this. Lazarus and Jesus have become famous. They're back in this small town, and people are coming for this big party, and it's a big moment. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 12. 
Six days before the Passover celebration, Jesus began. Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Mary served um, in his honor. Martha served, um, and Lazarus was among those who ate with them. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to eat dinner with Jesus, who raised the man from the dead and the man who was raised from the dead. Verse 3. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. I do not really know what nard is. I was raised in Horry County. It sounds like lard, but apparently it's the exact opposite. Okay? She anointed Jesus' feet with this, wiping it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. And so this is a very interesting moment it is an interruption in the party. It's a disruption to the flow. Um, and when you read it closely, she anointed Jesus' feet. So they're sitting at like what we would call a coffee table. It's a big coffee table, but it's low to the ground. So you would lean forward on it and your feet are behind you. So she has access to his feet. And if you think, man, that feels awkward. That is awkward. Like, it's not less awkward for them than it is for us. Most of you don't want anybody touching your feet. And you'll pay someone to get a pedicure. Some of you will. And so you just deal with it. But, like, this moment is too personal, too intimate, a little awkward. And he's leaning forward on the table. And then she does this. She wipes his feet with her hair. If you've been to the Middle East, I've been to Israel a few times, here's one thing you do not see in the religious sections, the Jewish section, the Muslim section, you do not see women's hair. They do not show it. It is covered. It is bunned, and it is covered all the time. That is something that's deeply personal, deeply intimate, that she shares with God. He gave her, and she shares with her husband, and it's not for public display in that context or in this context. And so she has touched a man's feet, covered it with this expensive perfume, and she is now wiping it with her hair. She has revealed her hair to all these people, predominantly men. There is nothing about this moment that can be reproduced. This is awkward on top of awkward. This is what she has done. And if you think, well, maybe people aren't really seeing it. If they can't see it, they can smell it. It fills the whole house with this fragrance. People can see it. They can smell it. They know what's going on. We get, in verse 4, a reflection on it. As they remember back what happened after Jesus has died, this is kind of an editor's comment. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. The average income in the state of South Carolina for an individual is just a little over $30,000. Average household income is just a little over $50,000. So she takes $30,000 worth of perfume, breaks this perfume open, and pours it out. This is an expensive moment. A whole year's worth of salary she pours out. And Judas, as they're thinking back on it, he was loved to steal. He's a crooked dude. But he says, this perfume is a year's worth of wages. It should have been sold and given to the poor. Verse 6, not that he cared for the poor. It's not even about that. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole for himself. 
And so we're seeing some commentary about what's real, what we think is going on and then what's really going on. Judas does not care for the poor. Um, he just looks and sees we are wasting money. Nothing about this makes sense to him. And here's what I would tell you. There's, it doesn't make sense to anybody else either. He's just the most corrupt and the most vocal. He's the one talking about it. It doesn't truly make sense to anybody. Verse 7. Jesus says, leave this woman alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. He is not slamming ministry to the poor. He is not saying we don't care for the poor, we don't serve, because this moment is not about the poor anyway. He's a thief. He's just virtue signaling. He's just coming up with something to say because he's like, man, that's $30,000. I could have been in the purse. I could have stolen 10% of that or something. No one would even notice. I could have made some good money on that. So it's not even about that. Jesus is just seizing a moment. No one knows this, but next week at this time, Jesus will be killed. He'll be tortured. He'll be put in a grave. And so he seizes it. He goes, she did this in preparation for my burial. He goes, she set aside a time to worship me before I'm gone. And here's, here's where we're going to get to in this path as it, as it continues to unfold. Jesus' point is that he is more important than money. That he is more important than the poor. As difficult and complicated as it is to say something like that. He's not saying the poor aren't important. He just says, I'm more important. It's not that money's not important. He just says, I'm more important. And being able to discern the moment and what we should be focused on. And if it's the poor and it's money, then it's family, relationships, more important than a job. More important than what school you get into. More important than your grades. More important than winning a state championship. More important than anything that you would pour your abilities into. Gifted in music. Gifted athlete. Gifted in making money. Whatever it is you are wired up to do. He says that is a back seat compared to the opportunity to be able to connect with me and worship me. Which, if you just do a timeout, particularly if you're not a Christian... Who says things like this? So if you're thinking, Jesus is a really good dude, he's a really nice, nice people don't say things like that. Nice people don't say, don't worry about the poor, just worship me. Even if it's just for a moment. Nice people just don't say things like that. What he's being presented in this book is as the son of God, who is God, who's coming to us to present and offer himself as a sacrifice to pay for sin. So it's, it's a very tall order, and it's very interesting to think about. So he's challenging them. So, but the question kind of looms is, why did she do this? He goes, leave her alone. She's preparing for my burial. She doesn't really know that part, but she has done something. She seized the moment to worship him, and he has seized the moment to teach. And here's what we know about her. If you bring some other passages to it, we kind of know she probably has a real difficult background. She has the kind of background that might bring a lot of shame for her. But in this moment, ironically enough, she's bringing more shame on herself in the way that she's presenting herself to him and caring for him and worshiping him. This is an opportunity for even more shame. But she thinks somewhere in her soul, this is the moment and it's worth it. 
because these people are going to make fun of her. They're already, Judas says this out loud in front of all these people. He just basically says, everything you just did, that's a huge waste. I don't even know why you would do it. He completely shames her in front of all these people. It's real interesting that he's that bold and that courageous to do that to her. And so she has, there's something in her soul that feels like he has taken care of me. He has forgiven me. He has given me new life. So this makes sense to me. And the other thing is, we can't leave this out, um, he raised her brother from the dead. So she's thinking, I don't want to miss out on that. I don't want to neglect worshiping him and thanking him for what he's done. He's forgiven my sin. He's raised my brother from the dead. I mean, can't miss out on that. So, um, and it makes perfect sense to her. A number of years ago, one of my children, she was just born with some problems in her jaw, and her teeth were not right. And I never could quite understand what was missing, what was supposed to be there. Just something wasn't right. And so... The dentist just said, this is going to take an oral surgeon, and this is going to be very expensive. There's going to have to be a bone graft from a cadaver and rebuild part of her jaw and put some teeth in, and this is a big thing, right? And so I was like, man, that's great. I said, well, it's not really that relevant to us because we don't have that money. That is a lot of money. That's a full surgery. That's a big deal. Insurance don't cover that. And so um, this surgeon called us, and he said, hey, I talked to your dentist. He called me and told me about the situation. He goes, I want to do the surgery. I was like, I bet you do. Right? That's how you make a living. Good for you. Right? And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, I'm just going to do it. It'll be no cost. No cost to you. I said, well, let me just rehearse for you what he told me the numbers are, which is ironic. A preacher who doesn't know anything explaining to an oral surgeon what it's going to cost. There's some irony to it. Right? And so... Um, he said, yeah, no, I guess I got it. He goes, it's, it's, I, every once in a while I get a chance to do something like this. I really want to do this for y'all. I want to handle it. And so he did. He did that surgery for free. He never saw a bill. And it was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So then um, my wife, who's super thoughtful, she said, you know what we should do? We should take that couple to dinner. I was like, that's a good idea. We'd go to cookout or something great. That would be awesome. <laughs> And she goes, no, something really nice. I was like, okay, that is a good idea. So we take this couple to a very expensive restaurant and blow hundreds of dollars on this meal, something I would never do. But here's the thing. There was never a minute where I thought, man, we were wasting money tonight. It never occurred to me. I can't believe we just spent $300 on a meal with this couple. I mean, this is the most expensive thing we've ever done. This is a, what a waste that never, I've never done that, but it never occurred to me that we were wasting money. Why? Because we spent a few hundred dollars, and he saved us thousands of dollars. My contribution to the moment was not, hey, I'm going to jump in with you and help you do this procedure for my daughter. I had nothing to do with any of that. I have no contribution to make, and me attempting to pay would be an absolute waste of time. What I'm doing is just thanking and my thankfulness is just a token. It's very small. He's, he's not even concerned about it. But it was nice. And it was meaningful because it was heartfelt. But it's so much smaller than what he did. And here's what's happened in her mind. For her sin that has been forgiven 
for her brother that's been raised from the dead, for the one that who was dead, who's now alive, that is so meaningful to her that spending $30,000 on perfume to cover his feet and reveal her hair in front of all these men and wipe his feet with her, that seems like a very small thing for her to do. That seems like a reasonable, logical sacrifice for her to make. And I'm just going to tell you, that is not normal for us. Extravagant moments of worship where we seize the opportunity. Because if you're a Christian, the flow is this. I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin and turn to Jesus in faith. I find forgiveness. When I find forgiveness, I am grateful, and that gratefulness leads me to worship. That's the logical flow of it. And that's where she is. That's what she's living. And so if you've never been a Christian and you're thinking about this, that's your first act is an act of faith to trust in Jesus. And it makes sense when you realize what he's done for you, that he died in your place to pay for your sins. Or if you're a Christian already, then you live that same dream over and over. You're constantly reminded, this is what, I'm here because this is what Jesus did for me. If you had told me at 19 years, 19 years old that I would be standing here one day looking at you doing this, I'd be like, where's the carpet? There was carpet here before. But I would think there's no way. There's no way. But God has a way of just being faithful and kind and generous to us in ways that we don't understand. And that involves our time and our money, our thoughts, our attitudes, our relationships. And for some of you, there's a relationship out there that stands between you and God. And God doesn't want you in that relationship, but you want the relationship more than you want him. Or you have a reputation, and you're trying to protect your reputation, and your reputation is more important to you than a relationship with God. And no one can make those decisions for you. You have to make those decisions. Verse 9. When all the people heard Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus. They're famous. The man Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they're like, this is what happened. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. This man has died, been raised from the dead, and now they want to kill him again. He's like, man, I can't keep doing this. It's too traumatic. For it was because of him that many of people had deserted them, the religious leaders, and they believed in Jesus. So some people are believing and some people are not believing. And these priests who have been in charge, are, they feel threatened by Jesus so they were planning to kill Jesus, and now Lazarus is part of the problem, so now they're planning to kill Lazarus. You're like, man, these people are very radical. Let's, let's acknowledge they are. They're very self-protective, and they're trying to keep what they got. But here's the thing. As extreme as they are, a bunch of us are not much different. A bunch of you feel threatened by Jesus the same way they do, and so you will do whatever you have to do to keep Jesus on the sidelines in your life. You're not going to kill him because he's not here. He's not really threatening you that way. But you will ignore him, keep him in a box, keep him on Sunday, keep him at Garden City Chapel. That was a great week, but he's not going back home with me. While I'm here, we're good. But after I leave here, not so good. Look at verse 12. It seems like an unrelated story, but it is the same. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city, a large 
crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches. So there's a bunch of people in town. They hear about Jesus. They know about Lazarus. They take palm branches. They went down the road to meet him, and they shouted, Praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail, King of Israel. Palm branches will be like a way to celebrate. They're everywhere. So you pick them up, and you wave them, and it's like waving a flag for your country on the 4th of July. It's like waving a flag or a big finger at a big football game or something like that. It's a form of celebration. It's a way to enjoy something, be excited about it. So it's a big celebration thing. And here's what they're thinking. We hate Rome. We are under Rome's authority, and God promised Israel there'll come a day when we will no longer be slaves or be under the authority of anybody. And this man raises people from the dead. So if he raises people from the dead... He might be the Messiah and the king that we've been looking for. If he's the Messiah and the king we've been looking for, he will liberate us from Rome. This is our moment because the guy who can raise people from the dead cannot lose a war. Right? Every time your people get killed, he just walks through and raises them from the dead, and then they go back and fight some more. There would be no way to ever lose a war or a battle if your people could be raised from the dead so they are thinking this is our moment we have not had the kind of army that can overthrow rome but this guy raises people from the dead and so this is our moment the question is jesus is offering something but is he offering what they want they want freedom and liberty from this these oppressive people and that would be a good thing. But is Jesus offering the good thing that they want? Which stands the same question for you. You want some things that are very good. The question is, are you asking Jesus to provide things for you that he, he doesn't really want for you and that he's not offering? And then you get frustrated when you don't get the things that you want because he didn't show up. You said, well, this is what I was wanting. This is what I needed. And he didn't provide that for me. And then he would say to you, I never said I was going to provide that. That's not what I was ever offering to you. This group of people is convinced that this is what Jesus is offering, and it's not what he's actually offering. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Your king is coming riding on a donkey. What they want is a king coming riding on a war horse. If he shows up on a war horse or with a chariot, Everybody will jump on board and there'll be a great rebellion. But when he rides on a donkey, it's kind of a mixed message. They're like, I mean, he's raising people from the dead. He's coming into Jerusalem at this dramatic week of celebration, but he's riding a donkey. It just doesn't, it almost makes sense, but it just doesn't quite make sense. Because Jesus is coming, they think, to establish or the Messiah is coming to establish a physical kingdom, and Jesus is coming to establish a spiritual kingdom. He's not trying to overtake the Romans yet. He's overtaking hearts. He's not trying to deal with their physical freedom. He's trying to deal with their, phys- their spiritual freedom and the sin that's deeply embedded in their hearts and is deeply embedded in mine and yours. Verse 17. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, Raising him from the dead. So they're very excited. And they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him. They had heard about this miraculous sign. So they are thinking, this is our moment. 
God is going to give us what we want. And here's the lesson from these two stories. is that God may not give you what you want, but he will give you what you need. And what you need is the same thing that they needed. is redemption from sin that is deeply embedded in your soul. The kind of sin that you were born into and that you adopted, that you sanctioned and you said, I am going to live in rebellion from God because I know best. And God sends his son Jesus the first time to be a gentle king, to establish a spiritual kingdom to win your heart, to give you an opportunity to turn and repent. When he dies on a cross to pay for your sin, that the power of sin is broken. And that's the kind of freedom he wants you to have, not freedom from Rome. So when you say, God didn't let me get married to this person, and that's why I'm mad at him. He's saying, I didn't really promise you that. God didn't let me get into this school, or let me become valedictorian, or let me win a state championship, or let me be on this team, or let me play this instrument and have that seat, that chair. God, God didn't, that, that, those are things that God does do, but he does not promise those things. What he promises is, is that I have been cut off from him for all eternity, and by faith I can be restored to him. That he is providing a spiritual kingdom to win my heart. Now there is a second, there is a second coming where he does deal with the enemies of this world. That's another sermon for another day. Verse 19. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there is nothing we can do. Everyone has gone after him. And they're so frustrated. Everybody's going after Jesus, and therefore, we would say, we just celebrated a few minutes ago, 200 people at this camp went after Jesus this week, and we're celebrating. In this context, 200 people have gone after Jesus, and they're so frustrated. Here's what's interesting about this. They are at odds with Jesus, and they feel like they're losing. If they'll just continue to lose, they'll wind up winning. If they'll just let Jesus be in charge and stop, def- stop protecting the life that they think they want, and just give their lives to him and start following him too, even though they'll lose here, they'll ultimately win. But because they feel like they're losing, they're going to kill him, and then they're going to win. And when they win, then they're going to find out that they're actually going to lose. And that's what we learn from these two stories. And here's the same challenge for you as it is for me. We have to find a way to lose. You've got to find a way to surrender. The thing that's more important to you than God, than the work that he's done through his son Jesus, you've got to walk away from it. You go, well, I'm going to keep some of it. Here's what I would do. i just walk away from it, and then if he gives it back to you, then that's awesome. But anything that is greater to you than the work of Jesus in your life, then you, you just got to walk away from it. And if he decides to give it back in some other form, well, that'll be good. But at least, and it's okay. You're like, what's $30,000? He says, just break it. Just break it and pour it out. Just give your life to him, and then whatever happens after that will be better than what you were thinking anyway. Let me pray for us, and we'll ask God to drop.